Welcome to another edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 764. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. Today's October 7, 2022. All right, welcome to another edition. We're glad you could join us. There's a lot to talk about today. Uh, first, you know, we're still going to report on uh, what happened in Florida with the hurricane. We're going to report on what's happening over in uh, Russia with uh, Putin's little war. We're going to talk about uh, uh, Christian persecution around the world. Before we get to that, we always check with weather where, where we are. I'm in Spartansburg, Pen- uh, Pennsylvania, Spartansburg, South Carolina this week. Weather is awesome. We're going to Charleston for the rest of the week. Uh, it should be sunny and 70s there all week. How are you doing in Florida, George? Absolutely beautiful. The low humidity, blue skies. Uh, where we are, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the cool weather is a godsend for the people down in southwest Florida because uh, many are still without power, yet uh, the humidity and the heat is such that they don't uh, suffer from uh, the oppressive weather that you might have had earlier in the year. So just small benefits from a terrible situation. Well, it's a horrible situation. You get to see the video now uh, coming out of more of the destruction of uh, Fort Myers, which is on the, the west coast of Florida, Sanibel Island, uh, Pine Island. And it, it's hard to watch because people who, you know, have lost everything. Now, it's interesting to watch a Floridian say, well, I got my life. You know, mm-hmm. we're safe. Uh, we have food. There's the volunteers giving us hot meals all the time. Um, but listen, it, it hurts because you know everything we built up here in Florida, we've lost to this hurricane, and we have to rebuild. And that's one of the things I saw an interview with the. Uh, excuse me, while I mute my uh, watch here. I'm being texted constantly. Uh, I saw an interview with the, the mayor of Sanibel, who said, "We're starting over. We have to rebuild this island." Um, from scratch and she had President Biden and uh, uh, Governor DeSantos there together and uh, they're gonna start the from the the basic infrastructure of plumbing and electricity and rebuild the uh, the houses on the island Wow uh, that's crazy. we have per- we have as I mentioned in our previous show we have pressures of family and uh, social relations in that area and we have a number of uh, people who are taking down uh, trailers of water and diapers and baby wipes mm-hmm. um it's it, terrible things have happened but what i think is so wonderful is the spirit that people are coming together and helping their neighbor helping people they don't know and uh out of this tragedy is coming a renewed sense of community and fellowship uh, one of the things that surprised me, and may surprise many Americans if, if their memory of hurricanes is shaped by Katrina, is that there have been very few instances of looting. Uh, following Katrina, there was terrible civil unrest, looting, gunfire, rapes, and all this and that, as society broke down. Um, we have basically the same, not the exact same demographic spread, but these, this is not Southwest Florida is not merely Sanibel and Naples, uh, upper middle class white people. We have the working class communities and minority communities, uh, and yet there's no outbreak of crime. The one big, four looters were caught, and 
by the sheriff as they were trying to get to uh, Sanibel Island to ransack houses. And as uh, Governor DeSantis pointed out, three of them were legal aliens. And he's thinking, well, I think I'll ship them up to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, <laughs> they they would do much better ransacking Martha's Vineyard, yes. But the but amidst, in the midst of this tragedy, God is still working amongst the people. Uh, and there's a feeling of, of great gratitude for the help that people are receiving. Um, there's a good spirit and after all the nonsense we've been through in this country of uh, races and classes and sexes turned against each other to see people coming together united as americans in the face of a common enemy in this case hurricane ian that's a wonderful thing it gives me hope uh for the future yeah, and you have to, because right now in the culture, the Western culture, we're seeing a litmus test. There's there's a gay and black litmus test. If you are not uh, completely immersed and supportive and an ally of the gay uh, agenda, uh, you can't get a job uh, mm -hmm. in, in national sports and other places. If you are not an ally of Black Lives Matter and uh, a supporter financially, uh, you may not be able to get a job as well. Yet we see the, the absolute humanness of American citizenship happening here in Florida. You know, there was a tragedy and everybody stepped up. Nobody's judging anybody. You need help well, and I'm here to help. I'll pick one little nit with you. There are people judging, but they're not Floridians. Uh, I just I, I'll turn to <laughs> CNN and MSNBC and some of the newspapers and people and the press is trying to demonize Governor DeSantis and various leaders by saying, well, they should have issued an evacuation order earlier or relief supplies are not. They're playing political games where they're non-existing. I think one of them, there was an Internet, uh, a Twitter, uh, a, something went viral on Twitter. Uh, I think it was uh, CNN went to Arcadia, Florida, and Arcadia is inland, and it's the people who live in our the, the land is owned by maybe half a dozen uh, old families that each own ten thousand acre right. plantations or farms, worked by <laughs> worked by uh, migrant workers or African Americans, uh, farm laborers, and. The uh, complaint, and they had CNN going out to Arcadia saying, you know, this 90% African-American community is being left short in the distribution of supplies. You know, that was how the, men's, the, the reporter started. And then you had this black guy come up and say, hell no, you know, using, you know, rather <laughs> strong language, say, hell no, we love Governor DeSantis. We got gas. Look, the, yeah. look there's a tanker truck filling it up. And, you know, we got supplies. And uh, I didn't vote for the guy last time, but I'm going to vote for him again. And it, unless it was staged, this was the greatest advertising a politician could ever have. The, the, the point being is uh, we had the vice president of the United States uh, say that uh, for equity reasons, hurricane relief should be delivered, uh, distributed on race-based grounds. And here we have the community and the local government distributing it on need-based grounds. People in Arcadia need gas, they need electricity, they need food, they need jobs. The governor's providing that. The people on Sanibel Island, they need a bridge built. They may not need canned goods, but they need a bridge built. So in other words, the government's not just throwing money at the problem locally. 
it's responding according to the best interests of the community. And it's nice to see a government because they're Democratic mayors and Democratic sheriffs down here, as well as Republican mayors and Republican sheriffs. It's not a one-party system, but rather people are coming together and you know, praise God for that. And they're all thanking each other publicly. You know, Governor mm -hmm. this, uh, DeSantos thanks the mayor, the Democratic mayors of these cities. These Democratic mayors of these cities thank DeSantos. DeSantos thanks Biden. There, there is this, you know, we have to work together despite our politics uh, because these are, are tragedies beyond reason. Uh, you look at the video footage, and I, I saw a uh, interview with a uh, a couple last night who took a boat out to Sanibel mm -hmm. Island to go find their property. They were able to go in it and uh, and tour it for the first time. And you're like, they're just walking through the whole neighborhood, and their house was the only one standing. They're like, where do you start? Where on earth do you start uh, to rebuild? How do you get all this stuff out of here? How do, how do we how do we return to normal? And you know, when something goes wrong for the average person in this world, returning to normal can be a week away. Here, you're you're a year or two away. It's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. I'm smiling because I'm going to give a plug for my adult education class. Okay. We have a, on Sunday mornings at 9:15. We look at the look at the news through the lens of the scripture, and this and last week we looked at Hurricane Hurricane Ian and prophecy, with Jim Cantori predicting <laughs> it's going to hit our county, but instead it turned south. Mm -hmm. And the theme was, you know, the prophets of the Old Testament were they forecasters or what were they saying? Today, we're talking, this Sunday, we're going to talk starting over after disaster and tragedy. And we're going to look at it through the story of Noah and his nakedness and Job. And uh, the Bible's a wonderful thing to influence and inform people when you apply it to the news. It's just, mm -hmm. it's fun. Yeah. And I've given a lot of material here. <laughs> yes, you are. All right, well, let's move on to some Anglican news. There's a lot of it going on. Uh, we'll start locally here in the ACNA. Uh, a church called The Table has decided to turn tables and join the Episcopal Church. Statistically meaning that if you are an Anglican church, you have a 1 in 1,000 chance of joining the Episcopal Church. Uh, it's interesting because this is the first time we've seen uh, a liberal church jump the fence and go back into the, or go, go into the Episcopal Church. And uh, you, you know, this is kind of the, the division now of churches into conservative and liberal. Conservatives going the ACNA, liberals staying in the Episcopal Church, George. Jeff Walton had a great article about this, about the table in Indianapolis and how they voted 44 to 4, I think it was, to mm -hmm. join the Episcopal Church. They're a, they were a uh, uh, mission of the C4SO, and they just did not uh, share the, uh, the disdain for critical race theory and human sexuality issues that the ACNA leadership shared. They just were fish out of water, and so they jumped ship and went to the Episcopal Church. And Jeff's comment was, this works for everybody. It puts them into a fellowship where they're in the majority, and it sort of uh, takes out people who are, would be difficult in the wider ACNA who are objectors. And Jeff is right. It's good for the Diocese of Indianapolis. It's good for the ACNA. The only people it's bad for are people like me, because 
we get more nuts and kooks into the Episcopal Church, and I'm working to get them out of the Episcopal Church. But there you go. But they, in Central Florida, we've had uh, three, four, five ACNA clergy uh, transfer in and become rectors of parishes here. Uh, we haven't had any congregations join, but we do have, and it's not because they are liberals, but I think the professional opportunities for them were better in the Diocese of Central Florida mm -hmm. than the ACNA. I don't want to comment on individuals, but it's a two-way traffic. Uh, we see this in the Catholic Church, and unfortunately, liberal Catholics become Episcopalians, and uh, conservative Episcopalians join the ordinary and become Catholics. There's always going to be this traffic. And the only people it hurts are the minority groups who want to remain faithful to their original denomination. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with demographics. Uh, I live in Webster, Florida. If I want to go to an ACNA congregation, um, it's an hour. Uh, there's a brand new one in Tampa. There's one somewhere over in Winter Garden or someplace. Um, there used to be one in Mount Dora. Mount Dora uh, left the ACNA, uh, left the, the diocese. Um, and you know, once somewhere I don't know. And so, our choices uh, to remain faithful to, to uh, ACNA are very limited. However, half the year we get to travel North America and visit all the ACNA uh, congregations we want. But uh, it's very limited for us in Central Florida. You know, and to drive to those ACNA congregations, you pass maybe a dozen mm -hmm. traditionalist Episcopal churches that are indistinguishable in their doctrine and discipline from the ACNA. It, you know, it's local. It is, uh, yeah. So right. it's, um, whereas we uh, we know of uh, instances of, of, you know, traditionalist, uh, traditionalist Episcopalians up north that they have to drive to different states uh, to find a place <laughs> where they, if they want to remain Episcopalian uh -huh. uh, and have a traditional worship life, I get a lot of letters, not a lot, but I get letters uh, and emails from Episcopal clergy saying, what do I do uh, about the fact that I'm isolated among the clergy and, I'm, I, and I don't fit in with the majority? And my, uh, my advice is, has been consistent all these years. Be true, you know, you're worshiping God, you're not worshiping the church. Uh, be faithful to your call. If God's call you to serve this congregation, in the midst of a sea of uh, liberalism or oppression, continue to serve it and stand up for those people because if you leave, what's gonna happen to them? But if you don't feel that that's the call for you and you do need to be part of a, a better, a place that is better match for you, then look around. Um, and I think it's the same advice I'd give to the people at the table. They did not feel welcome in the ACNA. They did not feel that their views were appreciated and they weren't. Okay. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, nobody nobody really loses here um, because the ACNA and uh, all these dioceses have a policy that we're not suing for property, that we're not mm -hmm. going to force you to stay. We're not taking you to court to, to, to force you to worship our God. And mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the biggest win here is, okay, yeah, we're disappointed. Go in peace. Wow. You know that that's that's so much different than what we saw uh, with the property wars of the last uh, two decades within the Episcopal Church. The uh, 770 uh, uh, priests that were deposed. You know, it, it's it's a different uh, uh, ethos entirely. So, 
and it tells you how important leadership is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Bishop Lee of Virginia uh, was all was going to allow the the what became the Acne Churches to leave. They worked out a deal, and mm -hmm. then Catherine Jeffrey Shorey scuppered it. Um, John Howe and uh, Jeffrey Steenson in Rio Grande in Central Florida let some churches go with their properties. Uh, and the presiding bishop said, no, you can't do that. And they said, well, watch us. And they did it. Mm -hmm. uh, and other places, uh, the bishops were scared and did what the presiding bishop and their lawyers said. Um, leadership counts. And if you have a godly leader uh, who will allow the Holy Spirit to lead rather than the lawyers, I think we're, we'd be in a much better church all around. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Let's talk about <clears throat> bishops around the world. We'll start with Zanzibar. The cathedral in Zanzibar has all but locked the doors for a certain bishop. And uh, we should talk about that here in Anglican Scripture because you and I have visited the cathedral in Zanzibar. It was part of one of our trips to uh, film the primates when they're meeting. And it's a beautiful cathedral uh, on holy ground where... Uh, the slave trade is a predominant historical feature of Zanzibar, George. If the British, in I think it's the 1870s, sailed yeah. a gunboat onto the island of Zanzibar, told the Sultan to end the slave trade, the bishop said no, the Sultan said no, they fired their cannons, and the bishop said okay. Well, and, okay sure. and an Anglican cathedral was built on the spot of the slave market in Zanzibar. It's the Christ Church Cathedral in Stonetown. Mm -hmm. It's probably, apart from the beaches, it's probably the major tourist attraction in Zanzibar. And before COVID, it was generating over a million dollars in income each year from the tourist trade. Now, background. Michael Hafid is the Bishop of Zanzibar. And Hafid has been, uh, has, has sticky fingers, allegedly, uh, putting relatives on the payroll, the cathedral, pocketing the money from the cathedral, this and that. And we've reported in the past that he was sued as a correspondent in a divorce case, meaning a husband sued him for having an affair with his wife. He's been sued, has had a number of paternity suits. Okay, he's a dirty, corrupt bishop, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> the cathedral chapter, um, ha uh, a few years ago, locked him out of the cathedral. They would not let him set foot. And Anglican Inc. about two years ago had a wonderful story where the, the bishop was going to force a visit and there was a fight in the cathedral courtyard. We, we were there, Kevin, you know, that yes. little <laughs> courtyard area. Yes, sir. And there was a scuffle and the bishop's mitre was knocked off and stolen <laughs> in the fight. Well, it all... It, the, this, the complaints were sent to the House of Bishops and the bishops formed a commission to investigate and this past week, they released a statement saying they're going to put Michael Hafid on vacation. And they're going to ask the cathedral chapter to be dissolved and put the diocese of cathedral under provincial oversight, do an audit, check everything out. And part of the issue here, it sort of came to a head where the former archbishop, John Ramadani, had his funeral. He was from Zanzibar. He had his funeral there and the bishop was for forbidden entry. Uh, the uh, the vergers at a cathedral, they carry those big sticks for a reason in Zanzibar, to knock on the head people who are trying to come in. The, the, though this is an interesting local news story, 
it does speak about the problem of corruption. Uh, there is a the diocese, the Anglican Church of Tanzania does not allow suffragan or assistant bishops. It's not in their constitution. Michael Hafid, for in exchange for money, made an American an assistant bishop of Zanzibar. Correct. Yeah, and. This man goes around and he's in a breakaway Anglican group and he touts himself as assistant Bishop of Zanzibar. Uh, but Michael Feed basically sold the office. And part of the, pro you know, we may blame the Episcopal Church for corrupting the Africans, but with the lure of money. But it also works the same way. Um, there are African dioceses in the Congo and Tanzania and in other places that will take conservative money uh, from breakaway groups, I'm afraid, and do the same things uh, that we uh, criticize the Trinity Wall Street and A15 for doing. Buying votes, buying support, buying favor. Mm -hmm. Buying um, office. Absolutely. Buying office. And mm -hmm. here, here, in other words, in Kenya, the first woman bishop uh, in a diocese, she was a suffragan, and Kenya allows suffragans well, that diocese takes a great deal of money from the U.S., and they basically were given the money to hire this woman as a suffragan. She didn't have any jobs. She remains a professor at the seminary, National Seminary in Kenya, but she's now she became the first woman bishop because the Americans paid for it. Um, money corrupts, and it's not just uh, liberal money. Some conservative money corrupts, too. Uh, and people will write for me to time to time saying, oh, this bishop has got this orphanage and uh, we've been asked to help support it. Do you think it's a good idea? And in, and in some countries I can say, like in Uganda, I can say almost without checking, yeah, it's a good idea because they're very stringent in their controls. Other places I'll have to ask around and say, no, don't take this money because it'll just wind up in a new Land Rover for the bishop. It won't yeah. make itself to the to the uh, orphanage or to the well project that you are being told is being funded. Due diligence, friends, due diligence. There's snakes in the grass everywhere. Yeah. In fact, if you go to Google and you uh, search Uganda orphanage scams, uh, you'll have all these stories show up about people who were scammed out of money uh, even after doing the research. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's the one thing the the one thing you know an Anglican listens for is the word orphanage. What, how can I help? And that's how your money disappears. Even the liberals get scammed. About five six years ago, there was a group in Kenya that claimed they were gay Anglicans being persecuted, and they were forming a basically a gay underground group of clergy and one bishop. And oh, what was the name? Integrity USA yeah. was sending them money. And then it turned out to be a scam. So even the left will hear sob stories and get taken by scoundrels, as well as the right gets taken well, by scoundrels. We're good at heart. We want to help. And you know that's one of the ways we get scammed. Uh, to tell you the truth, George, somebody actually sent money to a Nigerian prince in the 1990s, <laughs> thinking that they're helping. You know, it, it, it is what it is. Let's move on to some more stories. All right, we've talked about before uh, upcoming consecrations of Anglican Network in Europe uh, bishops. 
and we we could never pin down the names we now have the names but it's embargoed because these uh uh two clergymen are going to inform their con uh, congregations this weekend hopefully next week we can uh, let you know who they are but this is becoming what i will call a big deal uh because they're going to have archbishop foley come over they're going to have a little conference beforehand and then they're going to say we're ready to retake the ground again of europe george yeah on october uh, Friday, October 21st, the Anglican Network in Europe will consecrate uh, two assistant bishops for this growing uh, group within the GAFCON movement. Mm -hmm. On October 4th, the uh, Synod of the ANINE approved the names, and we were given the names, uh, but said, look, they uh, have to tell their congregations. We don't want them to read it on the Internet before they get a chance to say this on Sunday. So we're holding fire with that. It's going to take place with alongside this meeting at uh, Christ Church Newlands, which is Melvin Tinker, the late Melvin Tinker's yeah. church he founded. Melvin was probably the, one of the most successful Anglican priests, parish priests in England, and then he left and formed a new church. And Foley Beach and uh, Charlie Masters and Jay Bean from New Zealand and somebody else who will come to me when I'm d at the next story. Four and uh, Dobbs. Uh, Dobbs, yeah. Uh, uh, Julian Dobbs. Yeah. Julian Dobbs yeah. from the uh, Church of Nigeria, uh, ACNA, excuse me, ACNA, Diocese of Living Word, uh, will be there, and they will be, and they will be, along with Andy Lyons, consecrating these men as bishops, and they are going to have a conference for Church of England and other clergy who want to learn about the safe harbor of the ANIE and the GAFCON movement, the Global South movement. I think this is the start of something big because the Church of England, I don't know how many more torpedoes it can take below the waterline and stay afloat. Yeah, I mean, they've had another this week, but the good news is uh, I had a, we had an email from one of our uh, friends well, we get lots of emails, but when we correspond with people, we said, oh, he was trying to find out who it is, and he talked to somebody, and they basically are saying the ANIE is being worked to death trying to pull this thing off. So it's either good news, because they have so much happening, so much activity, so much excitement that they're all running around, or they're grossly incompetent, and they haven't actually done anything yet, and they need to reserve the tea room and get the caterers signed up and everything. So well, I hope I, it's excitement rather than incompetence. I think it is excitement, because... I think Justin Welby has lost the benefit of the doubt uh, mm -hmm. with other uh, Church of England clergy. He's you know put himself into the position now where nobody trusts him. Uh, maybe just the inner circle, but uh, he's silenced all the Church of England bishops so that they won't uh, speak uh, negatively against him or the Church of England uh, he, or in, in politics. He's uh, brought about this ability now where people are like there really is no future for the church of england is there another hope somewhere and this may be that final catalyst that gafcon has been looking for because remember back when we were in uh uh kenya yes and we attended gafcon too that was uh, uh peter jensen's uh strike against the church of England. he said we're gonna form gafcon on the shores of the church of england on the shores of britain and we're going to retake the church. Well, that never really, really happened. Maybe now, almost a decade later, it will happen, George. 
interestingly, Justin Welby right now is in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But he's not going to Sydney. He's going to Brisbane, Perth, and Melbourne. Uh, he's skipping the... Uh, the, the uh, Big church. Conservatives. <laughs> yes. Well, and he's been interviewed, and he was asked about the developments of the creation of the Diocese of Southern Cross, and Justin's answer was very predictable. It's, well, unity, unity, unity. Anything that breaks the unity of the church is a terrible thing. Oh, does that mean that uh, Perth and these other dioceses should pull back from their threats to go full-born into the gay movement? Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, my call for unity only applies to conservatives. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yes, of course. But I think Justin's repeated, I don't want to call it faux pas, because after a while, you can't call them mistakes. But Justin Welby's chosen path, uh, I think, is going to galvanize the uh, conservatives in Australia, Sydney and Tasmania and Armadale and other places like that, really to uh, go all out and just say, well, the hell with uh, playing nice. We're not going to uh, do this anymore. The, you know, part of the, like in uh, Sydney, I'm sorry, in Melbourne, there's the church uh, on a hill, which is a plant, an evangelical Anglican plant church that uh, is tied into this uh, controversy over the uh, football uh, CEO, Andrew Thornburn, of being forced to resign because he holds to traditional Christian values and attends an evangelical Anglican church. Um, Sydney uh, has put out statements of, you know, this cannot stand, we cannot have persecution, and even moved uh, the Archbishop of uh, Melbourne, uh, Philip Freer, to say, we cannot have religious tests for people Litmus in test, secular yeah. employment. Litmus yeah. test. Um, and where's you know? And here's Justin Welby, having an opportunity to knock you know. Here's a lob. Here's a t-ball pitch that he could knock out of the park. And instead, you know, the, of talking about religious persecution and sticking up for Anglicans, and instead he decides to let's dump on Sydney. You know. Well. No, I mean, it's just, imagine the points he would win within the church, globally, and I'm talking church universal, if he had defended this football player and says, what are we doing, what in God's name are we doing by persecuting somebody with a a Western liberal litmus test? Mm -hmm. The church will not stand for this. And boy, his... his, uh, his brownie point uh, quota would go up big time, but no, no, no. He's there to he, to worship unity more than God, and that's not how this works. And sort of segue to another thing that is the same theme: unity more than God. The Church of England released a report this past week that uh, talked about 380 more cases of abuse, and one of the conclusions reached by the commission was that it placed unity meaning uh, let's uh, cover up and let's keep the system going rather than justice for the victims, mm-hmm. justice for the whistleblowers. Uh, just, you know, Welby and Cottrell both, to, oh, we are personally sorry and we're real, fully responsible for the corruption and brokenness and evil of this system. So 
they're doing and lessons will be learned it's the same song sheet they've been singing them from years and again they take claim responsibility but they don't act on that right because we're not looking for an apology we're looking for a systemic change Mm-hmm. Okay, an apology, and this is in true in Christian stance as well in the kingdom, is not about just saying a story. It's about stopping course and reversing. I apologize. I repent. I did wrong. I now need to take steps that I will not repeat that wrong. That's that's kingdom work right there, Justin. Uh, and you're not taking the steps to stop repeating yourself. Welby and Cottrell are hypocrites on so many levels in that they both go on and on about we need more women, we need more ethnic minorities in positions of leadership in the church. Well, the answer to that is, okay, you give up your job and make way, make space for uh, a woman or a minority. No, 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 we don't mean us. We, we mean uh, people below us. Uh, Welby and Cantrell both have dirty hand, unclean hands in the abuse problems. Welby, of course, with the uh, uh, Jonathan uh, John Smythe uh, episodes, where uh, he's alleged to have known about this since he was a teenager, and uh, the man, the Rush Michael Ru- Rush Michael Rushton, Rushton, the Cambridge Evangelical Rector, who uh, sort of was in charge of the whole Smythe affair early on, Welby lived with, in Rushton's house, had breakfast and dinner with him every night uh, when this was going on. And and Welby claims, well, I know nothing, I know nothing, I never heard of this or that. And Cottrell, of course, has was tied into some of the other abuse, uh, the fellow with the Indian last name, but I... I Just lots <laughs> Well, the, the, yeah. the point being, both of these men are guilty of inaction allegedly, of cover-up, of passing the buck, of giving a nice smile and a hearty handshake, but doing nothing. Has Welby met with the victims of Smythe, even though he's promised to? No, he hasn't, so on and so forth. Um, This is another shot below the waterline. Coincidentally, I uh, wrote a story on Anglican Inc. about a choir master in the Diocese of Chester, I think it was, who... uh, was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for abusing choir boys between 1968 and 1986. Hundreds of choir boys, allegedly. Hundreds of incidents. And he was, and there were 27 or 17 actual victims who were heard at the trial. Um, people knew about this. Did nothing. Uh, moved him okay. to another church. Okay. There were so many kids that this was reported within the church. Uh, I don't know if it reached the the bishop's office, but it was common knowledge within the church and the church leadership. Mm-hmm. That's so now. That's so sick. how many lives have been? I don't want to say ruined, but how many lives have been hurt by this pervert who now, at the age of eighty, is going to go to jail for twelve years, meaning he's not getting out. Mm-hmm. Well, he may get out, you know, because of uh, health reasons, but but here the day before. And this wouldn't even be in this report of the 380. Um, People, the culture of the Church of England was deference to authority, deference to senior leadership. I'll tell the bishop and the bishop, he'll take care of it. And the bishop filed it and put it away and transferred the fellow to another. It's the same patterns we saw in the Catholic clergy abuse 
crisis in the United States. And the, the different, I think there was a, was a $200,000 or $100,000 payout this past week uh, in the diocese, diocese of Winchester, Chichester. I'm, I've, I shouldn't confuse the two, but one of those with that last name, uh, last ER, part, yes. <laughs> where a, uh, again, a lay leader was abusing people uh, with, I don't want to say the knowledge, but after it was reported, they did nothing. And to a, to a girl uh, choir, uh, a choir uh, to a girl chorister. And now this woman's in her 50s and her basically life has been screwed up. You know, she can't, hasn't been able to have steady relationships with men. And, mm-hmm. and, but the point is, how many of this, you know, this has bankrupted the Catholic Church in many parts of the United States. They don't have the, uh, a tort bar in England that they do in the United States, but maybe it's maybe if they did, it'd be a better thing to basically let clean house and let the church focus on doing the mission of God instead of preserving the institution and keep their money safe. Just like the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, what you're doing is not working. It's absolutely insane. You've set up procedures now that uh, any complaints get stuck in red tape. Uh, mm-hmm. That you know, even if the bishop wanted to do something, he puts it on his 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 do folder. He sends it to the person he's supposed to have do, and it just doesn't go anywhere. It just disappears in some uh, you know ungodly quagmire. And in that reality, you're hurting your church. You're hurting and, the, the, the 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 shining gospel that was once the Church of England. And this is not a left-right issue, far from it. Uh, Surviving Church, which is a blog run by a retired priest, Stephen Parsons, uh, has written many, many times about uh, clergy victimized by senior clergy, bullied, sexually harassed, um, liberals against liberals, liberals against conservatives, conservatives against liberals, but the pattern is always the same. Protect the man in power and shut up and go away. Um, because that's what unity looks like to the yeah. Church of England. It's sad. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Church of Nigeria. They just had a standing committee meeting where uh, it involves many bishops. And what's interesting about the Nigerian standing committee meeting is what was not said. Uh, in general power sense, we, we, we certainly like to listen to what is said. But all of a sudden, you're like, well, they didn't talk about that. What's going on here? And one of the biggest complaints uh, and deficits of GAFCON is it was always led in principle by the primates. It was never led by the provinces. A province would only sign on to GAFCON if the primate did. And when you have that, that lack of security, you find all the time, well, yes, Tanzania's GAFCON this year, but not next year because they have a different archbishop. I want to know what's going on in Nigeria because they had a whole standing committee and they did not mention GAFCON, George. No, the, this communique from the standing committee of the Church of Nigeria was released this past week, and it's a question of the dog in the night, mm-hmm. as Sherlock Holmes would said, and the inspector said, what about the dog in the night? No bark. It, it, it didn't bark. <laughs> no bark. The communique spends a great deal of time, as it should, 
on the internal problems of the Republic, Federal Republic of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. They're very close to civil war. They're anarchy in some places. Law and order is breaking down. They've got the uh, Boko Haram in the north and the Fulani tribesmen murdering Christians in the Middle Belt and separatists down in uh, uh, what was Biafra, Igbo people. It's countries really having problems. The massive power outages, infrastructures crumbling, terrible corruption in the government, so on. And the standing committee of the Church of Nigeria addressed all of this, as they should. But then they had a paragraph about global Anglicanism, which was rather just said, ah, it's a mess, we need a focus. It, I'm paraphrasing the implications of what they all said, right. but basically said, we can't be bothered anymore because things are so pressing here in Nigeria. We are not going to... I'm going having a thought transference. It's, so, it's okay. So, so, so again, I'm an old man, so my brain isn't, uh, isn't in a linear process. In its own way, the Church of Nigeria is doing what Justin Welby did at Lambeth. Justin Welby said, I'm not taking leadership. In the global Anglican world. Mm -hmm. The Church of Nigeria is pulling away from the leadership that Peter Akinola gave 10, 20 years ago. We're not seeing Nigeria standing up and engaging head-to-head -head in battle with the uh, forces of uh, darkness in Anglicanism. They've uh, got their uh, own uh, battles to fight locally. Right. They're not going for the global stage anymore. What is happening internally is really causing the church to struggle and mm -hmm. you know especially on, on the, the cusp of civil war we saw this in, in sudan where it was divided uh, north and south a few years ago and i got a chance to talk with the archbishop of south sudan it wasn't on the record but uh clearly uh he showed a lot of disappointment with what happened in lambeth and uh i would hope you know soon to to have an interview with him uh because I think South Sudan is ready to to stand up to leadership, even though they do have eternal, internal uh, problems in the South Sudan. I think that they know it's so important to maintain leadership roles within the Anglican Communion and certainly within Gafcon. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, and South Sudan has the same level of internal. Uh, dysfunction is Nigeria yeah, absolutely uh, ongoing tribal except then you know tribal conflicts the Su Republic of Sudan to the north trying to destabilize them poverty natural disaster floods East Africa is going through a drought and there's a humanitarian crisis in uh, northern Uganda and southeastern Sudan yet Justin Badi Rama and the bishops of the Episcopal Church of South Sudan are willing to take a stand and make public utterances challenging Justin Welby to a degree that the Nigerians haven't been doing recently. So is this a function of the primate of that country being, you know, is Henry Ndukuba of Nigeria just not Peter Akinola and we shouldn't expect him to do that? In other words, it, is it the man or the moment? Mm -hmm. And I think South Sudan has a good link of the two. Well, let's see what happens with Nigeria, whether the man matches the moment for the global Anglican world. Next story, George. 
Oh boy. Uh-huh. It's, we, we talked last week about in depth about the uh, religious war underway from the Russians' perspective in the Ukraine. From the Orthodox, Russian yeah. Orthodox perspective, yes. And we're seeing many, uh, the, the Russian Pentecostal churches are backing Putin, for instance. It's at, but we're getting reports out of Russia uh, and the Ukraine that uh, sort of fleshing things out. Um, Forum 18, which is a news service that looks at Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union and religion, is reporting that there are arrests and disappearances of non-Orthodox clergy in the Russian-occupied portions of Ukraine, so that the leader of the Baptist Union in the Donbass, a Baptist minister and his wife, had a knock on their door in the middle of the night by men in leather trench coats, and away they've gone. Uh, are they being uh, taken to a place of safety, or are they disappearing into the gulag? Siberia, uh, we, yeah. We probably know where they are. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing we're seeing the Russian state looking at anybody who's not Russian Orthodox, and that includes Ukrainian Orthodox, in the Russian-occupied zone as potential fifth columnists and traitors. Russia, so Russian nationalism is now is being equated by the state with Russian Orthodoxy, which is one of the reasons why some Russian Protestant groups are becoming ultra-pro-Putin, so as not to be cast as potential traitors. So, um, and those who are sitting on the sidelines are now basically finding out that you either are for us, and if you're not for us, by action and word, we'll assume you're against us. Yeah. So we're seeing difficult times for uh, Protestants in the uh, occupied territories, as well as in the Russia itself. Well, and, but that's the, the, the big thing here is we don't really know what's going on. We have the fog of war. We have uh, Western uh, Pravda versus uh, Russian Pravda and all the propaganda that's going on. And more and more, I'm kind of believing that uh, Ukraine has an edge here, but you, you really don't know because uh, I, I think Ukrainian has a, Ukraine has a better press operation and a better media relations and people want to have the hope that ukraine is winning uh, this battle but we, we live in the, this fog and now you know the reports are coming that uh putin is shipping nuclear grade weapons to the border of ukraine and mm -hmm. that as a guy from the set in the 70s cold war that scares me george um because i think putin if cornered is unstable the i have a high school i had a high school classmate uh, i won't name him uh who uh i hadn't seen since high school but five six years ago we became facebook friends he's a very prominent attorney in his field he has a niche legal field uh, that is in a national law and he's a member of the rotary club of his town his city and they have been purchasing ambulances in Eastern and Western Europe. And my friend Jess was part of a convoy of secondhand ambulances being delivered to the front lines. So he drove an ambulance, I think it was from Poland, uh, up to the, uh, the front lines of the war to turn over to the Ukrainian Red Cross. 
he's fluent in German, and uh, he talked to a lot of people. And uh, one of the towns that he uh, to deli- the town he delivered his ambulance to was Buka, which is one of the suburb towns of Kiev, where there was massacres. And he actually talked to the people there. Uh, in those who, uh, German is a, I don't want to say second tongue, but German yeah, is a language that no people language. would speak. Yeah. It's a language that some people would educated people would speak. He doesn't speak Ukrainian. And you know, driving through Buka, he's you know there are burned out Russian tanks on the sides of the road, burned out trucks, abandoned artillery pieces. Um, some soldiers, Russian soldiers, try to surrender to some of the other members of the convoy of Americans driving ambulances. So from that perspective, it looks like the Ukrainians are winning. But in talking to the residents of the town, my friend learned that many of the men between, say, 16 and 50 uh, were taken away by the Russians or the, the mayor was shot out, shot, you know, taken out of his house and shot. And that this is a, a war whose ferocity, uh, you know, it's, it's a scorched earth war. Sure. Uh, there, uh, so would Vladimir Putin use a bomb, a tactical nuclear weapon? Um, if people say, well, they don't want to kill their own people and they see the Ukrainians as their own people, perhaps but they also see them as uh, forces of the Antichrist. And we're, well, at, we're at a pitch of emotion that uh, we could, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a tactical weapon launched. And here's how you know that Ukraine is winning. By there being the offer of nuclear weapons on the battlefield. Mm. Uh, it, you, Putin has been painted into a corner um, for many different reasons and his only choice now in his mind is to use or threaten to use nuclear weapons that is a person who's who's lost on the battlefield and well you know i'll 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 go out on an edge edge here and say Mm -hmm. in talking to my friend well emailing and communicating to my friend um the conventional wisdom in the ukraine is that um Putin and the Ukrainians were ready to make a deal where Putin would fall back and keep and in return for Ukrainian neutrality they would pull back to the Russian uh, majority lands and war would be over and the US government basically said no, uh, we want to move, remove Putin and the only way to remove Putin is for Russia to lose and the problem with this is that you're not giving Putin an off ramp you're not giving him a face-saving option. So if it's either all or nothing for Vladimir Putin, and nothing not nothing means his death and the death of his family and the death of the his close inner circle, what's it to him uh, that other people will die in a holocaust, nuclear holocaust, if he's guaranteed to die if he doesn't start a nuclear holocaust? Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah, I mean, I think also... America was surprised by how inefficient uh, his army is. Uh, we fully expected him, like he went through Crimea, uh, to be able to, to move the tanks in. People raised their hands, said, okay, you're in charge now. Uh, we'll vote your way. Ukraine was different because they fought back. And just a little fighting back showed 
how useless their tanks were, how useless their ability to deliver fuel to the tanks were, how useless uh, the morale within the Russian army was. I think everybody was kind of surprised by that. And especially here in our Defense Department and in, in our Pentagon, they're going, well, if, it's, if he's this week facing the Ukrainians, what would it take for us as a NATO entity to finally rid the earth of Putin? And I think this is going through some people's heads, even though, you know, he, he controls nuclear weapons. Uh, we have such military superiority, superiority over this 1970s army. Maybe we could uh, end the, the strafe of Putin once and for all. Well, it's, I, th I think you're right, Kevin. I think there's a definite strain in our defense and intelligence community that has this worldview. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think about the same people, you know, you know the neocoms who were saying this about, uh, about uh, Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. that if we just get rid of Saddam Hussein, Iraq will Open turn into, sure. then turn into a, a New England town hall democracy. Yeah. Uh, and what happened? Well, how many hundreds of thousands of people died after the war ended in Iraq's bitter sectarian divisions? What if if Putin goes, not naturally, organically, but as Putin is forced out, will we see the former Russian Empire break apart into a bitter civil war that would make the Iraqi war, uh, civil wars afterwards, look like a... Uh, uh, piece you know looked like a sunday afternoon snowball fight yeah now i mean it, what we, are the you know those people are not i don't believe that our defense leadership the the hawks are thinking this through uh yeah it'd be great if putin were gone but if he's gone you know if the strong man holding a fractious nation together is gone what does that mean well it means the chinese come in and take what they want it means the warlords rise it means militant Islam takes off in Chechnya and how many more wars do we want to be fighting you're, you're assuming there's not a, another Yeltsin to come up through the ranks and and, and take control of Russia as it falls further into obscurity um, well are Kevin do you trust the current US military with its preoccupation with pronouns rather pronouns. than <laughs> readiness and you know with when not when the army misses its recruiting uh, quota by 25 percent hmm. because and it's not because of uh, they're not enough teenagers anymore, but the traditional places that recruit in the military, places like Hooterville, Florida, the army is so PC that people who spent career, you know, we have a lot of retired military around here and they're telling their kids, don't go into the army. It's, you know, just not what it once was. It's, no, uh, it's been not, corrupted. Well, we do have out of shape kids who wouldn't qualify the military, but we do have enough that would fulfill the ranks if it were a good place to go for a career. It's no longer a good place to go for a career. I know this because I have uh, retired friends from the Army, Navy, and Marines that say I, they wouldn't do it again. Now, mm -hmm. back to Putin. This is something that we as a nation, and I, I would call us to, to gather and pray for this because uh, dying from radiation poisoning or dying from a, uh, a nuclear fallout is not the way to go. Mm -hmm. And we need to be sure that we can uh, not have this escalate to the point where uh, Putin orders a nuclear strike, hopefully his uh, generals don't carry it out, 
but uh, we need to pray that there will be peace and, and reason and, and sanity to return to this this situation. I mean, in a way, uh, Putin is acting a little bit like Adolf Hitler, who had a sexually transmitted disease that took out most of his brain. It, it, does Putin have it? Ah, I don't want to get too far into his medical history, but you know, it, this, this is just crazy, George. Absolutely crazy. That uh, I don't know. I, years after I, the fall of the 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 Iron Curtain, the that we have to even envision a time of nuclear war. It's not crazy because, I, it, well, first, Putin is being logical and rational according to his lights. Mm -hmm. it, in other words, in an American and a Western perspective, the jihadists in Iraq, the mullahs in Iran, the uh, uh, Taliban in uh, Afghanistan, they're crazy. They're not rational. Mm -hmm. But according to their religious lights, they are being entirely rational. And because the U.S. and the West basically joked off, you know, oh, religion, that's, you know, that's a private affair that has nothing to do with the real world. It's why we basically have lost those conflicts. We've not understood the enemy. And if we basically dismiss Vladimir Putin as being you know, driven by Parkinson's dementia because he's got one arm that shakes and whatnot, or that, uh, and if we don't take Kirill seriously when we when he says this is a holy war against uh, the West and its satanic visions, if we don't take that seriously, uh, we will, I think, find ourselves in a very messy situation of not of our understanding. Uh, you can. I do not believe that the current intelligence committee and the defense establishment is up to the job because they just don't understand religion. And and in Vietnam, communism was a religion for the North Vietnamese. Absolutely. And, yep. and we didn't understand that. We thought if we if they see the freedom and the joys of being a South Vietnamese, well, the South Vietnamese establishment was corrupt and crooked and all this and that. But we're fighting people who are willing to die for a cause. And if we didn't understand what that cause was and didn't respond accordingly, we will always be on the losing end. England has had some success in de-radicalizing Islamic militants. The problem is that this is a political hot potato because the Johnson, Boris Johnson, even though he was conservative, um, was seemed to kowtow to Muslim lobbyists who were more radical than the Muslim population and backing away from the derail. So you need to understand religion, and I don't think our leaders really do. No. When Joe Biden can say that his position on abortion is that of the Catholic Church, either the man is colossally ignorant of religion or something else is happening uh, in his mind. I don't know. Alright, well that's a full hour, George. Up to the minute again. And, and we, we, we got we have three stories we didn't I get know. to. We're gonna have to cover that on Tuesday and uh because I need to leave the Cummings repair shop and head to Charleston and uh you have yourself a great weekend. I'm Kevin Coulson. And I'm George Conger, and you've been watching episode seven hundred and sixty four of Anglican Unscripted.